You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. Thanks for tuning in to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Adam Reimer, president of Legendary Digital Networks. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. So you studied applied math and economics at Harvard. What attracted you to those disciplines and how has your finance background served you in your career? It's interesting. I went into college really thinking that I was going to be an engineering major. Just loved playing around with Lego and and that kind of thing growing up. And I started out as an engineering major and I made it through my first year taking all the requirements that I needed to do for that. And something really incredible happened by the end of that first year. I realized that I didn't actually want to hang out with any of the people that, <laughs> that were in school that were also majoring in engineering. And so my second year became one of, okay, well, if I'm not going to be an engineer, then what am I going to do? And how do I apply all the credits that I had already had? And one of the cleanest ways to do that was a concentration we had called applied mathematics, which was basically taking math and applying it to some kind of subject. So for me, who already had a bit of an interest in business, the thing that made the most sense was applied math and economics, and then spent the next three years sort of uh, getting into that, which was a lot of game theory, a lot of making decisions under imperfect information kind of things, which to me was was super exciting. And I think I set the tone for what I've ultimately been interested in 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 my career. When I did go back to grad school and and majored in finance, one thing to know about me is I do like the sort of, I guess it comes from being a math major, is I like the hard fact information. I'm more of a teach me something that you can only really learn from understanding the formulas and and the theory and how it was built up, as opposed to, no offense to anybody listening, you know, the sort of softer business sciences of like marketing and strategy, which at certain at a certain level is you can only really teach frameworks and ideas, but there's nothing in a sense super substantial. To you that. like the black and white? I do. Do you know your Myers-Briggs type indicator? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I go a little bit back and forth from being an INTJ mm-hmm. to being an INTP. So you have a little bit of spot in 80, but you're also probably a planner and a list maker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're not too far off. I'm an ENTJ, so very close. So you mentioned after your undergrad, you worked in consulting and then moved over to strategic planning and BD for Universal. You were there for about three years between those two jobs, and then you went and did your MBA. So yes. what made you want to pursue more of a business degree? You know, so I was a management consultant for a year and a half, which turned out to not be the, the right thing for me. Learned, learned a lot of great skills about how to build presentations and research and sort of deal with people who are far more senior than you, but wasn't really that Subject matter wasn't that interesting to me. That's about how long a lot of management consultants last, <laughs> it seems. So I found a fascination right around that period of time with digital media. It was right at the dawn of Winamp and MP3 files, and that was all starting to go around. And I just thought that was the coolest sort of thing, to be able to use your computer to send music files around, share shows, do all the things that otherwise required tapes and a lot of time. Ended up working for a startup in the digital music space, which led me to Universal Music, which was a fascinating couple of years because I was there 
I showed up at Universal right around the time that Napster launched, the original Napster, the, the one that probably a lot of people don't remember, but the, the free, crazy, piracy-driven Napster. And we were working very hard with the labels, with the artists and the lawyers and the managers trying to figure out if there was something we could do to, to make this work. I had come to the conclusion pretty much that there was no way that we were going to figure out how to solve the problem in enough time to save, in a sense, the business, right? To not have to go through some major restructuring and changes. So that's what led me to go off to business school, sort of write it out. I went back to business school with the complete idea that I would go back to the music industry if there was still something to go back to. And by the time I graduated, which was in 2002, sort of right after the dot-com crash and all the other crazy stuff that was happening, there just was, there was nothing to go to. Why music? Are you just especially passionate about that? Or you had enjoyed working at Universal Music Group? Yeah, I think like a lot of us, you know, music held a very important place in my life. Like if you grow up as, I think as somebody who grows up, if you grow up as a nerd, first of all, and you grow up somewhat antisocially, music is sort of the one thing that you can kind of connect with people, doesn't require them understanding a deep look into your mind. So so music was always a big thing of my youth. And then it was still important to me in college because in the Boston winters, there's not a whole lot to do except go to concerts and drink a little bit and study. So music was always an important part of that. And, and I realized, you know, when I, after I left management consulting, the question I kept asking myself was, what would you do if you actually just wanted to enjoy the subject of what you were working? And I say this to people all the time when they're looking for jobs, you know, and I'm trying to get them to think bigger, right? If you really like mountain biking, if that's what you love to do when you're not working, try to figure out if there's something you can do in that industry, whether it's working for a manufacturer, magazine, website, a GoPro type thing. Like, like there's got to be some way for you to tie an interest together with work. And you'll find yourself, I think, just happier every single day of your life. So for me, it was music. And that's what led me to say, okay, well, how can I do in a sense what I know is management consulting and strategy and research and presentations? There's got to be some place in the music industry that they need that thing. So let me find it. And I was able to. Do you play music as well? Not well. Okay. <laughs> Not well. I uh, grew up playing, took piano lessons, took guitar lessons. I can dabble around here and there. I think the one of the downsides of, I think, being in Hollywood with a lot of very, very talented people is you realize how terrible you are relative to people that really know what they're doing. <laughs> and it, it sort of shuts that all away. Well, you can always make them presentations, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I can build a mean PowerPoint. That's there. right. Do you ever pick up either of those instruments anymore? You know, we just got a piano in our house and I've got a little one. I've got a three and a half year old. So we're starting to play around with it, but definitely awesome. more on a, just hear with the sound, hear the sounds. So you went back, got your MBA. And then after that, you spent seven and a half years at Universal Pictures. So Correct. what made you go into the motion picture industry? You know, I think I, I came out of writing this wave of change that happened in the music business and started looking around and saying, okay, well, where's this going to happen next? And I think in the, the world we live in today with high-speed bandwidth and huge hard drives, it's hard to remember the time when some things just weren't technologically possible, right? So the things that were happening in the music business because of file size of MP3 files and, and storage capacity and being able to have an iPod that held 500 songs, that was liberating for that business. But it could not apply at that time to the film business because you couldn't stream a movie, you couldn't store a movie, there wasn't a device that you could watch a movie portably on. You know, as somebody who really loves technology, you sort of knew that was the next thing. So for me, it was, okay, there's no music business, but clearly these are some problems that the film business is going to start to face somewhere in the next few years. Let's jump over there and see if we can start learning how that business works so that when the time comes, we can not make all the same mistakes 
still some of the same mistakes, but not all of the same mistakes that we made in music. And you ultimately left and started your own film finance and production company. What prompted you to do that? Yeah. So, you know, one thing to know for anybody that's working inside of a big corporate institution is whatever that institution is, is going to have a core business. So for example, if you're working for a movie studio, their mission is to make movies and make money by making movies. So if you're affiliated with some other part of that company, when the main part of the business is not doing very well, you're going to suffer the consequences more faster and swifter than any other part of the business. So essentially, long story short, Universal had a couple of really poor years from a film performance perspective. And I was running a group that was in charge of looking at things like web video, mobile content, video games, clips and stills licensing, kind of the next generation of content and how do you monetize these new platforms using the infrastructure that you had with, with a movie studio. You know, the timing just wasn't right at that point. The focus needed to be back on maintaining the profitability and performance of the core business. And there were some changes made to my group. You know, I didn't leave under kind of any bad circumstances. It was just one of what I wanted to do didn't really match up with what the mandate was for the company. So at the time, the chairman of Universal, there were two chairmen of Universal. They both had left the company at the same time that I was leaving the company. And one of them got together with me and, and said, hey, you know, got this idea to launch a new film production company. He had a big background in international financing for movies. I said, why not? This sounds like a great opportunity. Get out of a corporate behemoth, get out of a place with 30,000 employees, do something on your own, four or five people, and learn what it's like to actually start a company and, and do it from scratch. So I gave it a shot and had a great time. Sounds like your fascination with game theory and handling uncertainty served you well, probably in that instance. And startups are, I guess, by definition, building something under conditions of high uncertainty. Yeah, high uncertainty. But look, I mean, for anybody that's out there doing it, it's just a roll up your sleeves business, right? I mean, any any startup is, is, it will work. You just have to keep working at it. Like anything that's hard, if you keep banging away at it, eventually it'll get done one, one step at a time. You, know, you just don't give up. What was the hardest part in those early years? Hardest part was just learning how that business worked. If the business that we are in is, is what I'd say very much a digital business, right? Ones and zeros and views and those kinds of things. The independent film business is, is I would say very analog, right? So getting accustomed to dealing with a completely analog business, which is about relationships and talent and directors and scripts and, and going to festivals and raising capital, you know, it's just a different environment, I think, from what a typical technology startup is, is dealing with. Do you think technology will ultimately disrupt that business? Not directly. I think it'll disrupt the business in terms of how content gets distributed, which will change the economics of the business, which will change how money flows into that business. But the nuts and bolts of how you make a movie on an independent basis probably can't change very much from how it is, which is, you know, it's sort of like saying, is there a better way to make sausages? I, I mean, it's pretty much been done for hundreds of years. This is how you make sausages. And while you might change some of the apparatus, at the end of the day, you're still s stuffing stuff into a sure. shell. Okay. <laughs> so you came to Nerdisk post-legendary acquisition. Yes, yeah. after, yeah. And how did that come about? What was that transition like? Well, you know, I had sort of reached, I think, the, the end of my time in the independent film business. We made a film. We released it. We made it at the Cannes Film Festival. Had a great experience with all of that. Ultimately, I, I think my mind was more set with something that's a little faster paced, things that change every day and, and where you're constantly watching your back to see what's happening out there. So I was looking around and I had a, some friends that were at Legendary and they knew my background at, at Universal and a few other things and just sort of a fortuitous timing where I reached out and I said, hey, is there is there anything that you could use me for? 
they said, well, we've got this, this company, Nerdist, and we're really looking for some help as we're thinking about the business model on how to really drive revenues for something like that. We don't have anybody here that, that knows that area. Would you be interested in coming to, to help out? So I said, hey, I'm definitely interested. Met with Chris Hardwick. I had a couple of great conversations, talked about where the company had been, where they're trying to go, and then uh, came in and, and started hitting the ground running. That's awesome. Seems yeah. like a really good fit given your background in digital and understanding you know, both sides of the traditional entertainment business, right? Having worked with Universal. I don't, I don't think I realized how good of a fit it was at first. You know, I think that the more time that I spend here and look, admittedly, I think jobs often evolve or mold around what the person who's, who's in it is capable of doing. When I came in here and realized how much of, there was need to produce content, there was need to felt like a startup. It was really putting a lot of infrastructure in place of how to grow revenue and track revenue and, and costs. And then also understand the kind of changing media landscape. It was kind of a very nice combination of experiences that I've had. But we also happen to have a very gifted group of people here that I could ask questions of and, you know, really turn this company into something bigger than I thought that we could have even done two years ago. I was going to ask if you're a nerd at heart, but you already alluded to that during your time at Boston. So how do you express that? I am a big nerd. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I grew up in a time when being a nerd was, was not a good thing, right? I grew up in, in the time when people may remember Revenge of the Nerds. And while I was not probably as far gone as, as the characters in Revenge of the Nerds, I was definitely more towards that end of the scale than the other. I had an Apple IIe from the time I was eight years old and spent my time dialing into bulletin board systems and going to virtual get-togethers and playing video games. I mean, that was kind of kind of my youth and, and concerts. You know, nowadays, that, that, that stayed with me for a long time. I mean, things like playing Magic Gathering, video games continued. And even today, unfortunately, you know, as you, as you grow up and have other responsibilities... You sort of have to put some of the, the nerdy characteristics behind you. But look, I'll be lining up with everybody else to see Star Wars the day it comes out, follow everything else that's happening. So you came into Nerdist, which was eventually brought together with Geek and Sundry mm -hmm. and Smart Girls around the beginning of this year, right, to, to form legendary digital networks. Correct. And what was the rationale or how has that changed since those pieces have all come together? Well, it's, it's been interesting. I think it, it stems out of the objective of what do you do with channels that were funded by YouTube? And there were a number of them where they were given a lot of money to create original content. And as a result of creating that original content, they grew a pretty hefty subscriber base. But what they did not have was a real business model. I think a lot of these companies thought that they were a business because YouTube was giving them money to spend. So it felt like a business, right? You're getting money, you're making content, you're putting that content up, and then you've got more money coming in. The thing is that those things weren't correlated, right? So YouTube's money was really just deficiting some business that they were trying to launch. Most of those investments were unsuccessful. Very. Especially the ones who came from a traditional entertainment background. Like when they tried to give a traditional celebrity money to, to build an audience on YouTube, they didn't, that didn't pan out. But right. it did for Amy Poehler and Smart Girls. So what, what was unique about that? Well, I think for hers, it was, it was just the honesty of it, right? It, was, it, was something, it wasn't trying to create sketch comedy or anything like that. It was, it was how to empower girls and women and sort of have an opportunity to talk to Amy Poehler and, and Meredith Walker and and just share honest stories, which is more similar to what the other successful YouTube channels were. It was more engaging an engaged conversation with talent as opposed to, you know, fourth wall kind of separation of, okay, we're here behind the screen doing our thing and you guys like watching it. So great. Don't bother trying to talk to us. So it was, it was just an engagement driven channel. Same thing with Geek and Sundry. And so the notion was, okay, we've got this engaged subscriber base for both Geek and Sundry and Nerdist and Amy Polar Smart Girls. Is there something that we can create to help offset the costs associated with creating that content, 
right? It becomes a scale issue, right? So if you're able to take a number of channels together and consolidate production services, finance and legal, all the backend things that go along with running a channel, then you can start bringing the cost down on the content itself to a place where it might actually make sense on both an ad-supported and, and subscription-supported basis. So is Legendary getting behind a lot of the YouTube Red initiative or trying to distribute on other subscription-based platforms? Yeah. So you know, one of the first things that we did when I came in was take Nerdist and the other channels and, and get that channel carried on as many other platforms as we could, recognizing that the splits with YouTube are what they are, that the reach that we have is going to be very limited to just the people who like to watch YouTube and saying, okay, look, we're a premium network. We make premium content. Let's go get ourselves on more premium platforms. And that led us to deals with Go90, with Spotify, with Xbox, with Daily Motion, And we also put our own player on the site and look at it as, okay, look, if you were a cable network, if you're the sci-fi channel, you're not sitting there saying, okay, we're on Comcast. We're happy. We're good. You're saying, okay, we should be on every cable platform out there. We should be on Uverse and Fios and Charter and Time Warner. The goal is its reach. And once you have the reach, then you can talk to advertisers about if you advertise with us, if you work with us to create something, you can reach viewers across all of these platforms, not just this one specific platform that might have one particular kind of viewer. So I want to come back to something you said earlier. And in fact, something we talked about even before the show, which is this concept that People who are trying to put TV on the, the internet are not mm-hmm. successful, right? And so digital natives, people who grew up on YouTube, YouTubers or, or the talent themselves are the ones who are successful. And those who've learned from those success stories, like an Amy Poehler, who's learning to engage directly with the audience and not just try and recreate a broadcast medium directly to a viewer, have ultimately built a, a larger audience. But what other kind of stories can you share about that? And is that still a struggle that we face between traditional worlds and the digital worlds? Well, it's something that we think a lot about here. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time personally. And it does stem all the way back to the music business where, you know, just as a perfect example of, of how this was dealt with there, everything was an album. Everybody remembers it was an album. You got a record. There were a couple EPs out there, but for the most part, they were albums. You would buy something, it would have an A side and a B side, and there'd be somewhere between eight and 15 songs on it. And that's what you bought. What the record industry didn't realize at the time was that the creation of the CD was actually the precursor to the whole industry falling apart, right? So the CD, beyond the fact that it, it had no piracy controls, separated music into tracks and allowed a technology that let you skip back and forth seamlessly, re-listen to the same track over and over again, go from song one to song eight, skip all the songs in the middle. That completely changed the user experience of music as opposed to making a mixtape or any other kinds of things where you had to fast forward and rewind or listen to the radio where you don't know what you were going to get. So think about how much of a change that is to the user experience of listening to music. Now, when we started getting into digital, the question was, you know, should we create a different form of music? Why are we still releasing albums? And some might argue, well, that's how bands think about creating music and that's the creative process. But then at the same time, maybe that's not how bands think about it today. Maybe it should be We just release one song every three months. Maybe we release three songs every quarter, whatever it might be, and just sell songs on an individual basis. And it's not so much about an album as much as as just creating music and monetizing it. This was something that the record industry couldn't really wrap their heads around at the time. And it's something that I think is a corollary to what we're seeing digitally, which is when presented with a new platform that has new technology capabilities, why would you be thinking about how do you just shove the existing content that you have into that new format. 
when television came along, the consideration could not have been, I mean, I'm sure it was, and I don't know enough about the history of, of television broadcasts to say that this didn't happen. But if you were a radio broadcaster and then television came along, clearly you can't say, oh, let's just, how do we take radio and bring it onto television? I'm sure there were some shows that tried to do that, but the ones that were most successful were the ones that tried to take advantage of what the new television format offered in terms of the for the size and the sound and the, the colors or the time black and white, but you know, essentially understanding this is a different way to communicate. When I look at digital right now, these are the questions that I'm asking. It's how do you take the format and the technology that exists with digital, the ability to interact with the audience, the ability to get them to do other things while they're watching or share those things with other people or communicate back to the show itself? How do you create something that actually leverages how people are watching and where they're watching it that is different from other kinds of entertainment or communication that existed before? So when I see essentially television on the internet, and there's a number of platforms that I look at that are launching that feel very much just like TV on the internet, what are you really accomplishing? And, and are you really getting that next generation of audience or are you just trying to migrate the existing television watchers to a different viewing device that you might have a bigger margin. And so thinking about that and also thinking ahead to next year, what are Legendary's 2016 priorities? The big things for us for the next year are going to be continue to grow our, our networks, continue to find new audience where they exist, continue to get our channels on different platforms as they're out there. And then we are very actively looking at, at creating a different type of platform that will allow us to engage more directly with our audience base. We're trying to actually put our money where our mouth is and create this new kind of content that will allow people to participate and share and, and create a community around Nerdist and Geek and Sundry and Smart Girls in a way that hopefully nobody's ever really seen before. Can you give us any more specifics about what that platform would look yeah, like? Look, I think, you know, think about Twitch. Twitch, I think, has really changed the way people think about watching content. I think Twitch created a level of engagement and participation that never really existed before because you're there, you're in a chat room, you're watching things live, you actually feel like you're part of the story that's evolving. I think there's a way to take that to the next level. I think there are ways to expand on that level of interaction and give audiences a way to, to really connect. We've seen it in other media, right? Radio has had call-in shows for 60 years. Even television has some elements of being able to interact, whether it's American Idol where you can vote people on or off, Survivor, even other talk shows like Talking Dead, where you can call in and, or, or Skype in and be part of the show. So we're trying to figure out, and we're working on ideas to bring that level of, of interactivity to digital content. What do you think of the other live streaming platforms that have followed Twitch? What do you think of you now, you know, Facebook live streaming, YouTube live streaming? I think the question we have to ask is, are those technologies or are they platforms? You know, at a certain level... Twitch is, is a little bit of both just because it has a, a subject area, right? If Twitch was back to Justin TV and it was really just more about a live streaming any kind of content, then it loses what it is. So I think that there's a lot of good technologies, technology platforms being developed, but I don't know that they are the go-to place. I don't know that they will become the place that people go to watch the content. I think those have to get used by where the communities are. It feels like Web 1.0 or 2.0 at this point. The idea of driving somebody to a particular place to consume something is gone. You have to be where the person is watching something, whether that's on Apple TV, whether it's Chromecast, whether it's on Facebook, whatever it might be. You have to be where they're watching the content. You can't just force them to go to your channel. And this is 
essentially, I think, why television's having trouble, why, why we're seeing a lot of existing platforms having some trouble, because it's all about driving people to a place so that you can control and contain the environment. And those days are just unfortunately ending. And for those listening, that's why we're not meerkatting this interview. <laughs> what do you like to do for fun? Fun. Well, you know, like I said, I've got a three and a half year old, mm -hmm. so try to spend as much time with him as I possibly can, which is which is a trip, and you know, also very insightful to seeing how the next generation is going to be using technology. Yeah. Because anybody who's ever played around with a toddler realizes that things like an iPad are just completely second nature, and the idea that you can't just touch any screen in the universe and have it interact with your finger is beyond. Them. So this is just something they're going to expect as they grow up, and and it really, I think. Think about that. He's three now and he'll be, you know, in 10 years, he'll be 15. That's 10 years. So think about what happened over the last 10 years. Think about what's going to happen over the next 10 years. Pretty, pretty exciting stuff in terms That's of awesome. communication. What is he into these days? You know, almost anything on Disney Junior, Disneyland. He's doing, he's doing toddlers karate and, and soccer and little science kind of things. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's, he's going to be a nerd like his dad. He's stuck. Outside of that, you know, travel when I have time. Poker. Like okay. to play poker. A lot. I think that is the natural state for somebody who is a game theory major, essentially. Poker is kind of a perfect game for that. You any good? Uh, decent. Cashed a couple times at the World Series. Cashed a few times here in LA. I played with my share of bracelet winners and it's been fun. Any tournaments coming up? Not for the next couple of months. Next big one is I'll probably wait till the World Series next summer. Can't wait to follow that. <laughs> Thinking back to your startup experience, and dealing with uncertainty, what has been your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? Starter experience. So, so talking about the, the film. Not specifically, it doesn't have to be confined to, to working at that startup. It could be at any point in your career, just life in general. What, you know, from learning from failure standpoint, what, what jumps out of you? Yeah. I mean, God, there's plenty of, plenty of things to point to. I think going with your gut has to be a big one. I've been in a number of situations where I've seen something going wrong or thought that something wasn't quite going to work. And I just kind of sat quiet and, and stuck it out, hope that things were going to change. Or, you know, it's sort of like the tap on the shoulder to somebody as opposed to the, no, seriously, something's actually going wrong here. And we see this happen with like all sorts of, of startup type environments where somebody knows that there's a problem and, and can't figure out how to voice that or explain it in a way that other people will respond and listen. So I've had that happen a couple of times, both at the film startup and then also at Universal and some of the startup tech things we were doing there. Also, I think, you know, really believing in what your vision, like your personal vision, there's a certain degree of autonomy that's important to give to the people you're working with to let them sort of make decisions or fail on their own or learn things. But, you know, in startup environments, if you're going to be the kind of visionary leader, at a certain point, if you see things going in a way that you don't necessarily believe is the right one, you do need to step in and take the reins and push people in the right direction. And if they're not willing to do what you think is the right thing to believe in, in yourself, again, if they, if they can convince you otherwise, if you have a meaningful conversation with somebody where they've got a point of view, which differs from yours and you can see the benefits of, of what they're thinking, then by all means change your mind. But if you're going to be a leader and you're going to have the vision, then your vision has to win. If you're going to fail, fail fast. And you can't fail fast if you're going off in lots of different directions. Yeah. You have to be aligned, right? Having a North Star in terms of direction where everyone is pulling in the same, you know, going the same way is helpful. Yeah. I agree. It's all about if you're going to give that autonomy, it has to be matched with accountability to that vision. Which has been a big one. I mean, it's something that thankfully, I think if I didn't have those lessons when I came here, we'd be in a much different situation. We've had to make some tough decisions over the last year and a half, but we've been able to make those decisions faster 
than I think we otherwise would have been able to make. What books have you read recently that you just couldn't put down? Oh God, I'm, I'm right in the middle of reading The Martian right now. Which, uh, seen the movie? I haven't seen the movie. I was handed the book at a conference a week ago and I was on the flight back and I said, I should try this out. And, and I'm sort of halfway through it. It's great. It's been a lot of fun. And I love the story behind it because it, I think not only is the book good, but the story behind how the book got published and became a film is exciting. People don't know the story, but it, it was self-published ebook that got enough traction and gained enough readers and enough fans that it then got picked up by a major publisher and then released and, and sold to Fox and the whole thing. Wow, there. I didn't know that. Yeah, so so it was really a, a lesson in what new technology is, is enabling creators to do, which is something that our company really strongly believes in. So we're working closely with a company called Inkshares, which is a virtual publisher as well, running some contests to l- allow authors to create books, do Kickstarter campaigns, essentially, for writing new books. The whole combination of it is pretty great. Ready Player One. I've heard that's excellent. Also great. Just, you know, I think it helps to have grown up in the 80s where almost everything in that book is, is something you can completely relate to. And remember, couldn't put that one down. And then I've been, I just finished reading more of a, it's not really a self-help book. It's, it's a book written by a Wharton professor called Give and Take. Oh, that's right. Adam Grant. Adam Grant's book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good which book. is, which is, I think really worth reading just to put thoughts in your head of what that leading doesn't necessarily mean making everybody do exactly what you say, that you can still win by helping other people. So are you a giver, a taker, or a matcher? Yeah. <laughs> I have my suspicions, but it's interesting. I think on the record. I think it's changed during parts of my career. I think that I was too much of a giver for a long period of time and then started to realize that you have to take a little bit. So I'd say I've, I've become much more of a matcher and giver depending on the situation. Great book. That's a really good book. <laughs> if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? In any part of the business? Any part of content creation to to platforming. Mm -hmm. I would do something in in live streaming. I think that everybody, I think that's really the the future of online video content. I would look at creating content that is increasingly engaging in a way that people can't look away, right? So the way I would be focused on, let's just use American Idol as an example. Objectively, there's no reason I think why American Idol should be should have been as huge as it was. But at the time, it really was one of the very first shows that allowed the audience to participate and engage and get behind the talent that was on it and make decisions that impacted the future of the show. So if I was getting into online video right now, I'd be focused on on how do you create that experience in online video? How do you move away from, in a sense, like uh, cat videos is the right thing, but you know, just catchy, shareable things where you're using, where it's mostly built around viral distribution to something where audiences are being attracted in as opposed to pushing it out. And the next question I was going to ask you is if you had to make, say, three predictions about where the industry is going, what would you say? I'm anticipating live streaming is going to be a big part well, of it. Well, live streaming is a big part of it. Yeah. But, but the biggest thing that I see happening is the creation of what I call virtual MVPDs, which are, you know, if you think about your, your current cable subscription, if you think about Comcast or Time Warner and how you pay a monthly bundle fee and, and the fact that everybody's, a lot of people are starting to either cut that out or never subscribe at all. At a certain level, that has to exist. The function that exists, the the user interface, the ability to consume content from a number of different places in one location is an important thing, right? 
as more and more content moves online over the next couple of years, it can't be a, a scenario of let me log into Netflix and then log out of Netflix and let me log into HBO and then let me log into you know full screen and let me log into something else. That is not a good user experience. There's no way for anybody to win in that scenario. So if you accept the fact that that is not going to be the future, then what does work, right? So will the Apples of the world, will the Googles of the world figure out how to create this virtual MVPD that allows multiple channels where that could to exist side by side, ESPN and HBO and Nerdist and Geek and Sundry? Is there a world where all those channels can exist and the users have more control over what they subscribe to, right? So that there are payment plans and programs and bundles but there, I will, I see it's you going, your own package. It's more all of it, it, It's an a la carte bundled package, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Right. So rather than if you subscribe to the sports package, here's the 50 sports channels you want, of which you only want three of them. Yeah. It's more and of you a, love hockey and none of those channels are really dedicated hockey. Yes. So you should build your own package. So, so I think what you'll see is a scenario of you pick the channels you want and then you'll be presented with how much it would cost to get those. And then you'll be presented with add-ons where it'll say, okay, these are the channels I really want. That's going to cost $37 a month. but it, And then it'll be like renting a car, right? But you could get these other three channels for only a dollar more a month. And so people will get back to the bundle, but they'll feel like they had control over, over what's in it. And that'll make everybody a lot happier. I think that's really prescient. Why don't you go and do that right now? <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I, I would love to. Unfortunately, you know, my business is is focused on content creation and, and audience building and not the underlying services of delivering online video. Sure. I mean, that's that to me is a very exciting part of the business that's going to evolve. I don't know. And look, it's great for Silicon Valley. If somebody's got an idea to start something like this, it'd, it'd be great. I don't know if you'll be able to compete as a startup with the Apples and Googles of the world, right? Apple's got the challenge of it's a completely walled garden. So ultimately, if they want to create a, an API format that lets you plug into Apple TV and create their own, in a sense, user guide, they can do that. And then Google, ultimately, I mean, at a certain level, this is what they do. This is the mission of Google is to provide information. When you think about watching content, if the goal is to be able to access all of the content that you have at, that you have available from your subscriptions... It's kind of right in the sweet spot of what they would want to do themselves. Hopefully they're listening. <laughs> Adam, this has been so much fun. Where can people find more about you and more about Nerdist our legendary digital networks? Yeah. So, so lots of different places. I mean, you can go to Nerdist.com, geekandsundry.com, legendary.com as, as kind of corporate sites that you can really find out a lot of information. If you do a random search for me, you'll find, I think, probably just as much on poker as you will about all the other things that, that I've been working on for better or worse. And if you want to reach me directly at the office, it's uh, a rhymer at legendary.com. There we go. Yeah. Get some fan mail. Great, for sure. <laughs> Adam, thanks again. This has been a blast and lots of great insights. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. A lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Next time.